Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 137, recorded August 29th, 2013. Right, so this is our 72nd 90s episode, and today we're covering the original series and the Next Generation annuals, annual number fives. Yes, double fives. Right, so uh, somehow our... Uh, schedule because of all the the mini series and things like that that we did over the last few episodes. Uh, this is a 1994 published date, so it's a little little out of sync with what the other stuff we're reading around this time. Right, but that's okay, especially in the Taz situation. Right. Well, I mean, in both cases, the series is over by this time, and we're just doing like filler episodes. So it's not right. like we're it's not like anything major could have happened. Right. And even more so with Taz, because they're going back into the original uh, TV time frame. Yeah, they didn't They didn't even stick with the uh, the movie continuity. Right. Yes. Yeah, which is and fine it, with me. Yeah, I like it. I like yeah. it. Like I said, when I was a kid, if it had a yellow shirt on the cover, I was probably not going to buy it. I was going to wait till the next issue or whatever when they're wearing their... Uh, Rathacon uniforms, but now that I'm older and wiser, I do appreciate the original series timeline more than I did back then. Good. That is a very good thing to hear. Okay. Um, oh, I just want to mention something really quick. Uh, sure. And again, time frames are a little wacky and stuff, but uh, a new Smithsonian application popped up on my uh, Apple TV. So I was, and some other ones just popped up too. So I went in and looked into the Smithsonian uh, channel, and what's what's the the top three show icons, uh, documentary icons they have hitting you right in the face, and the one prominently in the middle is Star Trek. Yes. So it's a, it's a Star Trek documentary that basically is talking about the birth of Star Trek. Huh. And this it, it, it completely talks about uh, Roddenberry and what he was doing when he first got into writing for television um, and where he had the idea for Star Trek and how he got together with this other producer who was already pretty well known and pretty successful because he uh, did Mission Impossible. And I don't recall his name, but uh, Solo. Herbert Solo? I don't know, something like that. Han. Not Han, no. Definitely oh. not that. So uh, these two guys working together were able to, you know, talk to some of the NBC brass and, and the rest is history. So I thought it was a very interesting documentary. And for free, sitting there on your Apple TV through the Smithsonian Channel. Huh. Very well, cool. I don't have Apple TV, so I don't know if I'll be able to get a hold of that app, but... Well, yeah, exactly. So I, I can only hope, I assume, that the Smithsonian Channel is is offered through other means other than the Apple TV. But for those of you with an Apple TV, 
you may have discovered it already. I'll look it up, but uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I did read an article not too long ago about the the article I read was talking about how NBC gave Roddenberry the go ahead to make the pilot he made right. uh the cage or menagerie right. wh- whatever it was originally called the cage. Yeah, that's what I thought. And then it didn't go over well. They no. they they weren't too impressed and they were yeah. actually going to give it a pass. Yeah. And it was uh, right about that. Lucille Ball was the one that uh, talked them into giving it another chance. You know, I read that same article, and this documentary did not mention Lucille Ball at all, which is right. interesting. But and, and when I read that, I was like, well, you know, that makes total sense because Desi Lu was one of was the producer Produce, production of the company, show. right? Right, right. So I never really thought about what her or Desi Arnaz's involvement in Star Trek would have been, but you would right. think that they would have had some sort of say so. Right. Yeah, you would think so. Now, I didn't watch the entire documentary yet, but I've already gotten past the point where they were having difficulties, you know, with the reception that the cage got. Um, but I, they didn't, at least up to the point I, I watched it, it did not talk about Lucille Ball at all. So that's probably one of those things that did happen, but for whatever reason, this documentary, documentary didn't choose to cover it. Right. Anyways, very interesting. Yeah, it is. And, and one more quick thing to mention from the documentary I'll mention is that um, Leonard Nimoy was being interviewed and he said that um, Gene in the early days, because of course Spock was like the only guy that really made all the cuts to the fi- to the real TV series um, Gene liked to be called the creator of the show so the creators, you know, so and and he liked supposedly liked to say that he was involved in every detail of of making that show, and uh, this other guy Herbert Solo, Herbert F Solo, something like that, definitely Solo at the end, and not Han for a first name. Uh, he said that's just balderdash, because <laughs> there are a lot of other very talented people, including a specific guy. The name will probably come to me eventually. That was responsible really for coming up with the look. Of Star Trek, he's the guy that designed the Enterprise and um, uh, a lot of other stuff. I forgot his name though. Do you remember? Because if you say it, I'll know it. It's not. It's not Jeffries, is it? It's um. There was a guy named Jeffries, and that's why the where they, they named they named the, the tubes, tubes, after? tubes after him. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, well, I, I forgot, but he, he he was very instrumental in in the look of a lot of things. Right. Huh. I just thought I'd I, I'm gonna. Have, how long is this documentary? I, was, I, the, I originally thought it was gonna be pretty short, but if you're not finished with it, it must be fairly long. Um, I think it's like an hour long, something like that. Hmm, that's a pretty pretty weighty documentary. Yeah, and for free, it's there. Whenever you want to watch it, just go out and pay the hundred bucks for an Apple TV. There you go. Okay, <laughs> so. Uh, so I get the pleasure of doing the Taz annual number five. Indeed, uh, the, you do. The, the, the title is uh, Dreamwalkers, and the published date is 1994, as Donovan mentioned. Creative team is Michael Jan Friedman. Artist is Carlos Garzon, who I think is some uh, a guy people should remember the name. Colorist is Ray Murtaugh. Letterer Bob Panaha, and editor is Margaret Clark. 
The cover shows an exploding star field with Kirk, McCoy, and Spock's heads superimposed over it. The Enterprise is streaking towards a brown planet on the bottom right portion of the cover. The story opens with Captain's log telling us that they are heading to Starbase 9 for minor repairs and shore leave. Mr. Spock has volunteered to stay on the ship for the duration of their stay, as he always does when shore leave comes up. Kirk hopes the lack of diversion that Spock uh, constantly experiences does not catch up with him someday. Spock is walking down a hallway when he is stricken by a dizzy spell. When he opens his eyes, he is on the bridge and presented with a scene from the past. On the view screen is the Fasarius, the huge spherical ship that threatened their destruction years ago. Just as then, a small ship emerges from the larger one, Balak. Spock says out loud that he does not understand, and Kirk actually responds to him, saying testily that none of them understand what the Fasarius is doing, but they had better figure it out soon. Spock tells Kirk this happened years ago, and Kirk incredulously says, Years ago? What are you talking about? Spock appears to be actually in the past, with all his memories intact, but others appear to be in the past, as if this is happening to them for the first time. Kirk tells Spock to pull it together or he'll have to have him replaced. The pilot ship takes the Enterprise in tow to a planet where the crew will evacuate the ship and then the ship will be destroyed, just as Balok had described years ago. Despite the desperate situation the alien paints for them, Spock says this is all a test, which will be explained in due time by Balok. They have nothing to fear from him. Spock then feels faint again and almost collapses. When he arises, he is not on the bridge, but rather is back in the hallway. He speaks to Dr. McCoy over the intercom and describes his sleepwalking event. McCoy tells him to get to sickbay and try not to fall asleep again before he gets there. As Dr. McCoy asks Nurse Chapel to prepare a diagnostic bed for Spock, he becomes dizzy and falls to the ground. When he comes to, he now is in the past. Spock tells him he injected himself with the experimental vaccine. McCoy looks around. There are children all around, and Miri. The lesions on McCoy's face begin to fade. When he comes to, he says this is all wrong. This all happened in the past. It's happening all over again, but how? McCoy passes out again and comes to in sickbay. Kirk and Spock are there by his bed, as McCoy describes what happens to him. So real. McCoy quickly comes to the conclusion that if this happened to Spock and McCoy, it could happen to anyone. Later they convene in a conference room. Eleven more crewmen have been affected by the daydreaming. So far this has not happened to anyone in the middle of a sensitive task, such as Scotty working on the warp core, but if it continues, eventually it will. Recommendations McCoy says there's no indication of any medical problem. Scotty says the life support systems are in top shape. Root cause is not there. Spock conjectures that rather than something being responsible for this, perhaps someone is. 
they have encountered entities in the past that could tamper with people's minds. Kirk says they need to find a common denominator in the dreams that might lead to the source. Spock points out that both incidents happened in the first several months of their five-year mission. They continue to investigate, and Spock conjectures they have plenty of new data points to examine as more crew members will likely become affected. Later, Ohura relives her encounter with Charlie X during a singing performance. As Charlie is again choking the life out of her without physically touching her, she snaps back to the present. Chekhov is next, and his trip to the past happens while on the bridge. In his log, Kirk reports there there are up to 44 people that had a dream trip into the past. They are no closer to figuring out what is going on, but an interesting new twist is that Chekhov and another crewman took a trip into the past that they never actually experienced themselves. The incident they relived took place before and it happened to other crewmen that were on the Enterprise back then. Chekhov himself relived an incident that happened to crewman Stiles years ago. This new twist indicates the dreams are externally imposed on the person rather than being plucked from their own memories. While on the bridge, Kirk himself succumbs and finds himself in the past in a hallway with, a lo- with the lovely Lenore Coridian. A lovely dream indeed. The dream goes like it did originally, including him kissing the girl. But towards the end, a woman with a tray enters the room. He does not remember her being involved in the original events. He cannot recognize her since her face is in shadows. He wakes up and is back on the bridge. He tells Spock and McCoy and points out the mystery person towards the end. Eventually his memory clears and he is able to remember it was Janice Rand. They figure out that Janice Rand was likely in each of their dreams. Some recall her explicitly and others, like Ahura, admit that she could have been out there but she did not actually see her explicitly. But Rand left the ship long ago to pursue the field of planetary research. McCoy ventures that since they saw themselves in their dreams, which is not common at all, maybe it was Janice's dreams that they were experiencing. However unlikely, they go with the idea and Kirk attempts to contact Rand, who is presently stationed at Starfleet HQ in San Francisco. He is unable to locate her, but does speak to Admiral Durham, who first wants to know what Kirk wants with Rand before he tells Kirk her whereabouts. Kirk tells the Admiral what has been happening to them and their theory about the tie-in with Rand. The Admiral tells Kirk that Rand is on a secret mission at the far side of the Chenekite border. They were sent there to find out more about the Chenekites. When their current bloody civil war ends, conventional wisdom has it they may be looking towards the Federation as their next challenge. Before that happens, they need to find out as much about the Chenekites' military capabilities as they can. The ship Ran is on is well overdue to make contact. The limited search that they have conducted so far has turned up nothing. Due to the clandestine nature of the mission, the search has ended. 
Kirk volunteers to search for Rand. The Admiral grants his request, but only if Kirk is able to locate her first. Later, McCoy objects when he hears the Admiral's stipulation. Spock comes up with a possible way to do it. He goes over his flawless memory of the waking dream. When, Bla- when Balok started to tow them to a planet where they would be interned on, Spock recognized coordinates on Sulu's helm station. The coordinates were nowhere near their location back then, but they were just inside the Chinookite border. Was Rand actually relaying her coordinates to Spock via the dream? Though it's a thin lead, the coincidence is too great to ignore, and the Admiral gives Kirk the okay to go after Rand. Kirk dreams again and sees Rand, the time his evil self went to her room and assaulted her. This time Kirk tries to talk to her, but is unsuccessful and gets scratched again by her in the face, just like the first time. They arrive at the planet at the coordinates of in Spock's dream. Ship sensors locate Janice, but her life signs are weak. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down and search old ruins to find her. An impressive city, but ruined with crumbling buildings and bleached skeletons all around. The skeletons are only 50 years old, which is likely more recent than all the damaged buildings. They split up to cover more ground in their search. Kirk eventually finds Rand unconscious, surrounded by a dozen or more aliens who are sleeping in alcoves in the wall. They are all plugged into Rand via cables of some kind. Scotty calls down, saying six Chinookite vessels are closing in fast. Kirk only has about five minutes before they arrive, likely with guns blazing. Kirk releases Rand from the machine, picks her up, and is ready to beam out when he finds himself on the bridge with Spock and McCoy present. Charlie Evans is in the captain's chair. Kirk verbally spars with Charlie until he realizes this is just another dream. Charlie is not really here at all. The sleepers that were plugged into Janice are just using his memories to delay him from saving Janice. A ghostly apparition of Janice's head is able to help Kirk and encourage him to wake up. He does so and finds himself with Janice still in his arms. As he moves to leave the building, the sleepers awake and attack Kirk's back. Kirk calls up to Scotty to beam he, Rand, Spock, and McCoy up immediately. Once aboard, Kirk gives the orders to get the hell out of here. The fur-clad Chenakite commander orders his ships to pursue the Federation intruder. As they approach the border into Federation space, both captains have a choice to make. Will the Chenakite commander cross the border in pursuit? Will Kirk turn to fight to protect Federation space that has been violated? The Chenakite commander breaks off the pursuit until they put down their own rebellion. They do not want to take on a second fight with the Federation. For now, the Federation ship is lucky. But soon, oh, very soon. Later in sickbay, Rand is conscious and telling Kirk how their investigation of the Chenakite space led them to the planet of the sleepers. They were chased down to the planet and their ship destroyed. 
Slowly, what was left of their crew was killed by the planet's hostile wildlife. Rand, all alone, was found by the sleepers and plugged into them. She provided the mental dream stimulation they were starving for, since their symbiotic, brute race died off from a plague. Rand found a way to use the dreamer's considerable mental powers to communicate over vast distances to the Enterprise crew, of course. Kirk comments on how torturous it must have been for her. Rand says it was, but the mental toughness she learned from Kirk is what kept her going. Kirk said he thinks he could learn a thing or two from Rand now. The end. She has some Donovan, mental toughness. Donovan, Donovan, wake up. <laughs> Donovan, wake up. That was a long one, Ken. It was a long one. Sorry. Whew. Yeah, so just a little background on everybody who might still be listening. <laughs> <laughs> it took me like two days to get through this book, and, and at one point I texted Ken and said, I can't stay awake reading this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Which is horrible, but but it was true. That wasn't very a joke. Slow. I mean, it, it it was just a slow story. I thought it was at, at first going back to uh, the events of the Corporal Might Maneuver episode was interesting. Okay. When I first opened the page and saw the Balok mannequin, um, it was like, oh, cool, Balok, cool. And uh, but you know, jumping back into the past, the novelty of that was starting to wear kind of thin. And it definitely did wear thin as people continued to fall asleep and re relive events that we've all seen already multiple times on the original TV show. Right. So. Right. It um, was, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 this, this this did not have to be this long a book. <laughs> and no, it was I'll, really long. I'll say, I'll say the same thing when we get to the next one, unfortunately, but <laughs> it definitely did not have to be an annual. Yeah, so these were fi- this one was 56 pages long. Yeah. Which is very very long. Yeah. But um I'll be honest. Um I personally think this book would have worked better if the framing story, the quote unquote now time would have been the, you know, Star Trek 2, Star Trek 3 timeline. Time frame. Mhm. Right. So I don't know why. I mean, I thought it would be cool to have older versions of themselves and then remembering them when they were young. And, you know, that way you would have a visual change every time they go into the past. Because a, right. a lot of times, except for the frame having that little, you know, the the frame of the panel having the, the cut-off corners versus square corners, you know, that was the only clue that you're now in one of these dreams. And so... You know, you would have you might be a panel or two before you realize, oh, we've we've switched. Whereas, wow. you know, if it was, ta- if it was the movie era going back to original series time, it yeah, would you'd be right more away. jarring. Yeah. So this actually requires you to be uh, keeping up with what's going in the on the story, so that when they go into the past, <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, that that's this is a new thing. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes, it, it would be it would be more contrast if they had different uniforms and things like that, right? Right. And this, you know, I know that you know DC Comics had their 
annual their first ser- volumes, their first series, and then they canceled that series and started, you know, volume two, which is what this is based on, or this is part of that series. And I know that volume one and volume two, two different continuities. Um, but this story contradicts stuff that happened in volume two um, earlier annuals where it talked about how Chekhov was on the Enterprise that first year. He just wasn't on the bridge. Right. Whereas in this story, he actually says, I wasn't even on the Enterprise yet, yep. which contradicts one of the earlier annuals. <laughs> actually, it wasn't, it wasn't even an annual. It was a... It was a regular series where he he uh, hit that girl that he asked to marry. Yep. Uh, turned him down, and then she died. And yep. I mean that explained that he was there the first year. He just wasn't on the bridge. Yet in this story, it, it clearly says I wasn't even on the Enterprise yet. Come on, yes. continuity. Yes. yes, Donovan. Yes. Of course, you would notice that. Everybody noticed that. <laughs> I didn't. Not at all. But good point. Excellent point. So, anyways, what'd you think? Um, I thought I thought I was reading a Gold Key comic because of the artwork. Oh, now, I, I, I got I, I got to say, was Carlos Garzon? Was was he involved in producing any of the uh, Gold Key stuff? Because this is not typical. DC Star Trek artistry, in my opinion. Right. I mean, it's and as a matter of fact, it it reminds me a lot of Gold Key. The 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 art style. Right. Um, the first time that Spock goes kind of dizzy. It just completely reminds me more of um, a Gold Key thing. So that's why I was wondering: is 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 Carlos Garzon a, a normal? Uh, artist for DC? Uh, did he have anything to do with the gold keys? I mean, I could be off on this. But yeah. but, but the art, artist style reminded me of gold key, except that the faces were accurate. I mean, <laughs> at least Kirk looks like Kirk. But other than that, uh, the style kind of reminded me of gold key. I could see that comment. I don't think Carlos Garzon had anything to do with Gold Key. And okay. He's, he's he's done issues of this series. Really? Okay. Okay. Well, I, I kind of remember. I kind of recognized the name, but I didn't know whether I recognized it from uh, other Star Trek issues or maybe some article I might have read on Gold Key. Because normally you don't know who who went into making the Gold Key comics. Yeah, and all the Gold Key. All the gold key issues were done by a um, Italian gentleman, and I forgot his name. Right. But uh, this this uh, Carlos Garzon, he he did the um, the mud, some of the mud uh, miniseries that we had a while back. Oh, really? And hmm. you know uh, some of the other ones. Yeah. I mean, he, he was the, he he did the artistry of both of the um, um, what's his name, Gary Seven. Episodes really so, around mm. fifty, right? So okay. Actually, ironically Good enough, he, he ironically enough, I, I looked it up. You just looked Iron- at it. Didn't ironically you? enough, he did do the artwork of that miniseries that I was talking about earlier, where um, Chekhov had a girlfriend in the past. Did he? Yeah, he did those three issues, fifty-eight through sixty. Well, damn it, he should have pointed that out then. <laughs> yeah, he probably should have. 
Except he wasn't putting the word balloons in. He was just drawing pictures. <laughs> and you think that Michael Jan Friedman would be uh, kind of up on... Uh, or, yeah, Michael Jan Friedman would be up on uh, continuity. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, you think that he would... Or the editor? I don't know. Somebody. And those actually came out in 1994, too. So it's not like it was that long ago. It was, you know, at most, it was a couple of months since issue 60 came out and contradicted this book as far as right. when did Chekhov join the ship. Right. But I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. That's cool. So another thing in the artistry I was kind of wondering about, or maybe this is more in the color area, is why um, McCoy joined the engineering staff. Or security, either one. Uh, did he have a yellow shirt at some point? Or, I mean, he, a red shirt? He had a red shirt on the bottom right uh, uh, cell of page 30. 30. All right, let's look. Oh, he sure does. And he, <laughs> and he kind of looks like a security guy, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Just a random security guy. Yeah, and it's funny because the panel directly opposite, on the same page, he is clearly in his normal blue... And actually, even Dr. McCoy uh, shirt, which is different from the normal crew shirt. Right. But sure enough, he's he's in a typical red uh, uh, tunic in the next cell. Yeah. Just thought I pointed out. That is funny. So the color's wrong, and the style of shirt is wrong. Very funny. Yeah. So, can I tell you what my... Uh, one of my... Maybe the only... I don't want to say the only part I liked. Okay. But... The part that I really liked. And can I, was, can, like, can oh, I take a guess? Yeah, go ahead. My my guess is because Charlie X looks like Archie. <laughs> as an Archie and Jughead. That's why. Is that uh, it? That's no, it. that's not it. That's no. not it. But, but okay, I, do see, I do see where you're going with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to be honest. Okay. I uh, didn't care for the book. I, like I said, I thought it was a little slow until 40, page 48 <laughs> when when Kirk finally breaks out of his dream and he's getting Rand out of the uh-huh. you know, the contraption that's that's keeping her, all the right. tubes and stuff that's keeping her alive. Right. And as he's carrying her out, all the other aliens Sleepers. Uh, they're like waking up and like almost zombie-like. Like, yes. That's those few panels are really creepy, and yeah. I loved them. And then, Espe- you know, they're all crowded around him as they're beaming right. out. Yeah, especially in that one that's a little bit further away, when you when you see there's like there's like 25 or 30 of these ali- blue aliens. Right. Uh, and, you know, they're all descending on Kirk and Rand. Yeah. Right. So the, page 48, page 49, favorite two pages of the book by far. <laughs> ah, cool. I loved it. Well, how'd you like the uh, stone knives and bearskins, uh, chitikins or chinnikites? Um, they were all right. I mean, they look a little primitive to be driving big giant ships. Ah, uh, but... starships, exactly. So the captain has like like furs on, and yeah. then the and then the only other crewman that they show looks like he's got like some kind of tan like. Uh, you know, uh, elk skin or something on. It's like it's very odd. So here's probably what happened, kid. What? The prop department didn't have time to make this costume, so they just <laughs> went to this lot 
What other costumes do we have that we can just stick on these people? Oh, Planet of the Apes. Well, just throw a couple of the human clothes on these guys and nobody will know. These guys look like they're wearing Planet of the Apes uh, attire, the human clothes from Planet of the Apes, the TV yeah, series. Yeah, or, or maybe some of the outfits... Uh... A private little war in the original TV series episode where uh, the Magatsu's in there. So the hill people look a little oh, bit like the hill people or yeah. whatever. Or what I was really thinking is maybe they were trying to make you think Khan and his people because they kind of wore primitive outfits too because they were on uh, Alpha Seti 6 or 4 or whatever. Right. So I don't know. It's a very odd clothing choice. Very. <laughs> I mean, it's not like the ships look incredibly sophisticated, but obviously they're able to uh, do do warp seven or whatever and keep up with the Enterprise. So they're obviously not slackers in technology, except when it comes to their wardrobe. <laughs> Very odd. Look on page fifty-three and tell me who you think the uh, the leader of the uh, Chunkin Knights is. Oh, where he's really angry and stuff, and is shaking his hands or what? Yeah, yeah. Who does he look like? The guy from Crosby, Steals and Nash. <laughs> yeah, like uh, Dave Crosby. Or Crosby. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he does a bit. <laughs> well, that that admiral did, didn't that admiral um, who was telling Kirk, sure you can go after Rand if you figure out where she is first. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that guy looked like a real person. I mean, it, it doesn't look right. like he, they just they just whipped him up up out of somebody's imagination. It looks like like somebody on the writing staff or something at the comic at DC. Um, right. Well, the same know. thing goes with that that captain of the Chunkerites. Yeah. He looked like he's yeah. probably like somebody's friend or something. <laughs> at first, I thought they looked like the same guy. Kind no. Of. I mean, no, one but, had but a, they're, one had but they're both kind of rough. Right. You know, they, they're both a little, a little rough in the face. You know, a little not-the-handsome kind of uh, perfect people you tend to see in most Star Trek things. Right. Anyways, I just thought I would uh, bring that up. Right. Or you brought it up, however we edit it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so... You know, when when Charlie X finally showed up, it was like, ah, finally. Because I was kind of thinking earlier in the book, you know, Charlie X could do something like this. Uh, mm -hmm. Charlie Evans, whatever. And then when he showed up, it was like, ah, Charlie. And then it's like, oh, he's a dream too. Okay, uh, fine. So Right, but then he shows up that second time, and, and I was thinking, okay, he really is somehow involved. Well, that's the time I'm talking about, really. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I thought you were talking about when he yeah, showed up. Yeah, the first time, time it was just with Ahura. Uh, yeah, right. it, that was just a memory from the past. But then when he when he showed up, and it seemed like it was part of the current time frame. Because he was even talking about, uh, I've got your ship now, Captain. And it's like... Uh, right, and then he actually references uh, Rand, you know, her, right. her face being there. And, like, she's kind of reining him in, and he's like, no, you can't stop me. Right. Yeah, that I was also... That was where it was yeah. getting interesting, but they lost it pretty quick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I don't have any more comments, so it's your show from now on. <laughs> yeah, I don't really have anything else either, Donovan. I'm, I'm pretty much done. All right. Well, then we'll jump into the Next Generation Annual. 
my synopsis will not be as long as Ken's, unfortunately. How we follow it all? <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll talk about it in a minute. Okay. For being 56 pages, there's not a lot of story here, so I kept it pretty brief. All right, so this is entitled Brothers Keeper. came out in 1994. Keep that in mind, Brothers Keeper, because uh, it will have no bearing in the show itself. <laughs> it's a complete red herring, but uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, the writer was Howard Weinstein. Penciler is Rachel Ketchum. Inker is Bob Smith for pages 1 through 40, and Charles Barnett for pages 41 through 58. Letterer is Bob Panaha. Colorist is Ray Murtaugh, and the editor is Margaret Clark. The cover shows, for the most part, shows the uh, torso, arms, head of Jordy LaForge. He's wearing a 19th century suit, and he looks to be in old-time London. Behind him and above him, we see the large disembodied head of Data kind of staring off to the side. Uh, below the head and behind Geordi, we see Barkley, and he's dressed in normal Starfleet attire. To Geordi's left uh, and behind him, we see uh, Picard dressed as an old-timey Bobby, you know, also with the uh, uh, 19th century London look. And then finally to the Jordy's right, we see Worf in a spacesuit, and he seems to be falling through the street. So maybe this is some sort of holodeck adventure. Don't know yet. So the story starts off, interestingly enough, with a chief engineer log. And it basically says, I caused the death of Data. So immediately it grabs you. What's going on? But then the word balloons end... And the story starts visually with Picard and a woman named Admiral Jane Kumar, and they're scaling Mount Everest. Before they can reach the summit, Riker chimes in and tells the captain that they've sensed a radiation anomaly nearby. Picard orders the ship to be diverted and to investigate since they are making very good time to Admiral Kumar's final destination. He also uses this as an excuse to stop the program and leave the holodeck. The anomaly turns out to be an abandoned space station, and it seems to be near a mass of some sort that's emitting the radiation. Geordi requests to be beamed over to investigate. Picard allows it, and the chief engineer, Data, and Worf beam over. While they are trying to scan the computer to find out what happened, Worf falls through the grating of the floor. The two other crewmen are able to pull him out, and then they all continue scanning the computer when the anomaly spikes and emits a very high dose of radiation. The Enterprise tries to shield the station and itself from the radiation as best it can, but eventually the Enterprise starts taking pretty massive damage, and Picard orders the shields to focus on protecting the Enterprise alone. Once this storm is over, Barclay is ordered to start working on repairing the damage. Because at this point, the shields are out. The or Actually, the shields are really low. The transporter's down. The sensors are down. The engines are down. Enterprise is in bad shape. And they don't know what happened to the space station or the away team. 
Eventually, the sensors are brought back online, and they're able to confirm that the space station is indeed still there, but they still don't know what happened to the away team. Eventually, a transporter is brought online, and Riker and Crusher beam over and find Worf and Geordi unconscious. Then they find Data, with his head split open, and he is completely unoperational. Sometime later in sickbay, Geordi wakes up, and Troy and Crusher do not tell him that Data is dead. He is ordered to rest. Later, unable to sleep, he walks into the medical laboratory and finds Data's lifeless body there. Riker comes in, and Crusher comes in to tell Geordi what really happened. Uh, Picard does allow Geordi to try to fix Data, but he's also ordered to take regular rest breaks. Meanwhile, Barkley is trying to focus on getting the engines back online, and he comes in to help Geordi whenever he can. Without any, any success in reviving his friend, uh, Geordi is taking his rest, and he's having strange dreams. He dreams that Data's asking Geordi to help find him. He dreams about the holodeck program of Sherlock Holmes, as if this was some sort of clue. And right before he wakes up from his dream, he says aloud, Professor Moriarty. Back in the waking world, he continues to work on data, but to no avail. The Admiral is starting to get upset about the delay. She even starts blaming Picard and Geordi on not having their priorities right. Instead of focusing on the warp drive, they seem to be trying to get their android back online. Geordi, upset with her um, comments, disobeys a direct order and he steals a shuttle and tries to return to the station, thinking that he'll get some sort of clue as to how to bring data back. The Enterprise's engines are brought online again, and they quickly overtake the shuttle and bring it back aboard. Once aboard, Geordi is surprised that Picard is actually giving him permission to return to the station. Geordi and Worf return. The anomaly starts to spike again. And before it can blossom and overtake the Enterprise and the space station, Geordi orders the whole computer core to be beamed back to the ship, along with Worf and Geordi. Once they're all aboard, the Enterprise warps away before the radiation can destroy them again. Geordi is able to use the core to repair as much of data as possible. Now it's just a matter of time to see if the repairs take effect, and they think that Data may regain consciousness in a few hours. During that time, Geordi takes a little nap. He's woken from his nap by a chime at the door. He opens the door, and he's very happy to see that it's none other than Data himself, completely returned to normal. The end. Oh, thank gosh! Data was dead! He was dead! So, reading this, and knowing that the title is called Brother's Keeper, did you not think that they were going to maybe somehow fix him with lore or lore. something like that? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I kept thinking. I was like, oh, they're going to have to, you know, because Data's so damaged... That they're mm-hmm. gonna have to go and find wherever they left lore at the end of uh, that that two-parter at the end season seven, mm-hmm. and you know using for spare parts. 
empty sense or something. Um, I, I, w- I did not think that at all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just because I really didn't pay much attention to the, t- the title. Oh, really? Yeah, because really, I mean, in the end, what Data and uh, Jordy are so close, and also because Jordy feels guilty right. for keeping them there for the extra time, that I mean, he he became the keeper of Data, so he was like the blood, the bro, the the brother that was taking care of Data. Right. That that's the only explanation I can see. That's the only explanation I can see too. But I thought it was a little misleading at the beginning. Yeah. And right. and you know I kept thinking I was like oh this is awesome because that's kind of what they do in Nemesis right so they they find B four and they put him together and then when Data becomes destroyed or inoperable inoperational they're able to maybe have a substitute Data in in before because they downloaded his memories yeah right so I was like this is actually kind of cool because this is like the same idea but done you know. Ten years before Nemesis comes out, but so that's, that's where they got the idea. Well, obviously not because they didn't exactly. do it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. But yeah, yeah that's going by your path of thought, right, that's what right. you could have assumed. I, that's where I was going. Yeah. But I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You think too much. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's like I. My biggest comment about this is it, number one, it's too long, and number two, there was no drama. There's no suspense because you knew Jordy was going to fix Data. I mean, come mm-hmm. on, you know he's in all the movies that happened after this. So, what do you want? Right, and and it was just it was just kind of boring. You know, yeah. the dreams really didn't factor into anything really, no. except for no. Maybe he's thinking of you know ghost in the machine type thing, and that's what Moriarty is. But uh, you know Moriarty's a a Moriarty is a um, you know sentient computer program that they're keeping trapped in the holodeck memory or whatever, and that kind of gives him the idea that maybe some of Data's memories or whatever is stuck in that computer core on the space station. That's the only explanation I can come up with yeah. to tie it all together. And, yeah. and it's pretty flimsy. That's flimsy. And it, it, so it's important that Jordy realizes that Data's neural net is, is decaying. So right. there, there, there's, a, there's a time problem. I just didn't get how he got that. He got that from the from the dream somehow. And it's like Okay, he got it from the dream somehow. It's like, how, and and how was that communicated to him? They never explained that, and and the whole dream stuff where he's Holmes and Sherlock, it brought back some nice memories of you know when they were playing Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson in the TV show. But other than that, I thought it was total filler. Yeah, I really think that they're trying to establish that Data's. Data in the computer core is like Moriarty is in the in the holodeck program, that he's stuck in there, and that's why he had to go to the that's why he had to go so bad to the space station. That that has to be the reason why it's there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and when they get to the space station, I thought what Jordy finds out is all this new information that he didn't have before about the nature of the radiation. 
And because of having the additional information about the radiation, the nature of the radiation, they were able to work out a way to uh, counteract its effects or something. Oh, is that what they said? That's what uh, I thought they said at the end. All right, well then I'll quit trying to to push my beliefs on to you because I'm obviously not. <laughs> I'm not. No, you can push your beliefs on me. I'm just saying. I'm, I thought they said that. Right. It well, the I would, I'm, I'm really just trying to understand why he says Moriarty and yeah, why they're yeah, having that. Blah, blah, blah. I don't. Anyways. Yeah, I just. Bye. Yeah. So, so unfortunately. And originally, my synopsis was going to be they find an anomaly, data is destroyed, Jordy tries several times to bring him back to life, and then goes and then, back. And then spring. tries several, several times more, <laughs> and then tries several, several times more, and then almost ends his career, and then... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it ended up be it kept getting longer than I wanted it to be. I really wanted it to be four lines long because yeah. that's all that really happens. <laughs> I mean, right. they they add a bunch of filler that you know Barkley comes in and is like, oh well, have you been recording what you've already tried? Oh, yeah. I forgot to do that. You know, yeah. they do that once. Okay, he's not thinking right. He comes back and has the exact same conversation. Oh, you're getting close, but uh, have you been recording what you've already tried so you don't do it again? Oh, I forgot again. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, if you still didn't have warp drive yet and you were still potentially going to get a dose of radiation from this anomaly, wouldn't you not want your top two engineers working on data? I mean, bad <laughs> enough that... Bad enough that Jordy is is preoccupied with it, but Barkley shouldn't be sitting there. He should be back fixing the engines. Exactly. Anyway. Right. I, I totally agreed with Admiral Kumar when she said that. I mean, I could kind of buy Jordy. He's technically not supposed to be working at all because he, you know, he is sick. He should be on sick time or whatever. Right. But you know, because he won't lay down in bed even though he should. You know, it's good that he's working on something, and right. he's obviously not in his right frame of mind because he's he's making a lot of mistakes as far as you know. Oh, I forgot to record what I was doing. You know, yeah. so you don't necessarily want him on your engines, but <laughs> <laughs> but definitely broccoli. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do like that Picard gives Brock. Uh, <laughs> you had me say it. Uh, Bart <laughs> uh, props when he's like, you know, he's he's actually a. Uh, very competent uh, engineer in his own right, which I thought was was pretty good. That was good. I wish, I mean, in Voyager they kind of do that, but nowhere in the Next Generation movies or in the TV show do they ever, you know, use him for anything more than comic relief. You know, occasionally he saves the day, but it's usually by accident or... Not engineering things. You know, his whole paranoia of being transported you know, right. ends up being, oh, you were right because there's transporter aliens. <laughs> transporter gremlins. Oh <laughs> so, I mean, he saved the day before on accident, kind of, but right. but never like here where, you know, he truly was. He was the go to guy. Right. He was the go to guy. He was Geordie's right. number one. <laughs> who can take over when need be. So, um, I thought. You know, so much of it was filler. The whole, Picard, or the whole uh, wharf falling in through the door, and then 
that takes up three pages of them talking about how to get him out of the floor. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'm going to lay down on the grating like I used to when I was in the ice rink. And, uh, Worf, can you prop your foot on something to, you know, and it's just like, this doesn't even need to be in here at all unless Worf's foot is the one that accidentally turned on the program that erases (laughs) Data's memory, which it isn't. It has no... No No bearing on anything. has no bearing on the story. Yeah. Except for that it takes up page... uh, uh, nine through twelve. Right. <laughs> I, it, it underscores the fact that the uh, station is falling apart, but I don't think you need that many pages in order to uh, reinforce that in our minds. Yep. Yep. Well, I do like the little humorous turn that Picard does towards the beginning. You know, when he's hiking up Mount Everest mm-hmm. with uh, with Admiral Kumar and. Uh, she's chiding him about, uh, come on, come on, come on, I did this when I was seven or whatever. And, uh, and then at the end, he's, <laughs> he, he's got an out, uh, to get out of the climb. And then, uh, and then, and then it's brought up about him saving the program. He's like, saying, hmm, not necessary. <laughs> he's done climbing. He's done with this program. Right. I, I even like, funny. I even like how Riker's like, well, you don't have to come up here. Oh, yeah. well, I, I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> you can save the program. I don't think I, I will. Yeah, I, I did like that part. I thought yeah. that was really well done. Yeah, that was. I like that part. And I like how Picard makes the tough decisions in this story. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the radiation comes in. The shields can't cover both the Enterprise and the space station. And a huge space station. I thought yes. that was questionable. <laughs> but but he he doesn't bat an eye at all. He's just you know one, once they it. start taking damage, he's like, all right, just cover the Enterprise. And you know, even though these are three of my good friends down there, I I have to make the tough call. Yep. And he does it. Yeah. And uh, I like that part. I thought that yeah. was good. And can you? Okay, I agree with that. Another thing I was kind of quizzical about is they're beaming over to a very damaged. Uh, space station, and they don't have the first time they go. They don't bother with um, environmental suits, right? I mean, even though sensors probably said, "Okay, it's a breathable atmosphere," they don't know what kind of shape that that space station's in. Uh, and they right. actually say when they're over there, like the main power's down, the computer's down. So it's like, well, obviously the life support's running, or else you wouldn't be breathing. And gravity. And gravity, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, in a situation like that, I would have gone with the uh, life support suits. Right. And the only thing I can figure why they didn't do that is that when the radiation does hit, then you might more say, ah, well, maybe because they had the life support suits, not as bad. Uh, no. They wanted you to be thinking, oh, they're in trouble. Right. Uh, I, that's the only reason I can think of why they didn't go over in spacesuits. Agreed. 100% agree. Yeah, so... Not very careful. Not very prudent at this juncture, so... Right. Alright, I don't have anything else. You? Um... 
I th- last comment is well actually no this is not my last comment I just have a few more so <laughs> I, I did kind of like in the comic how they showed Picard doing multiple pretty cool things with the holodeck so he's hiking up um, Mount Everest right pretty cool and then later on it just struck me as very pretty when he's riding the horse so the purple he's, horse he, uh, very, very pretty green scene, lake or pond or whatever behind him. I thought that you know that's pretty cool. I've always known that the that the holodeck's pretty cool, but the particular things they showed here in this issue that Picard was doing struck me as particularly cool. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't really understand why Picard and Kumar are playing around in the holodeck when the engines aren't you know. They don't even have engines yet. You think that they would want to be doing something more productive than using up resources, energy to, you know, create purple horses, but eh. <laughs> Whatever. It is, it is a it's a cool scene. Yeah. Yeah. Reminds me of, you know, something Star Trek five or something the Shatner would do with, with you know, finding an excuse to stick a horse in it. <laughs> exactly. But we do know that Picard rides too, right? So I did kind of like the uh, the Wrath of Kumar joke on page fifty one. Uh, I must have missed that one. Yes, the Wrath so when, of Kumar. The Wrath of Kumar. So when uh, when Picard gave Jordy the go ahead to uh, go back to the station. Oh, 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 right. And then she shows up at his door, and he actually says something about. He's he's expect he's waiting for the wrath of Kumar. Right. I thought, ha ha ha, Ruth of Kumar, like Wrath of Khan, but with Kumar. Yeah. I I liked it. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Ha ha ha. He I said thought... wrath. <laughs> so, so they can't even say wrath without you just assuming they're making a reference to Star Trek well, Two. Wrath of Kumar, wrath of Khan. That's too close. I mean, come on, you got come on. That must have been on purpose. <laughs> but I do like how Kumar, you know, in that scene, she's like, yeah, you're right. You know, he is a crew member. Yeah. I, I was maybe being a little harsh. Yeah. And also saying, listen to me now, because you won't hear this again. I was wrong. I like that. That was good. Right. I will not be uh, <laughs> admitting to that very often. So, I like that. That's uh, that's really my last one. I, I Last thing to mention, they used a lot of purple at the end of the comic. The color purple. They used a lot of purple throughout the whole thing. Yeah. The horses, yeah. the radiation. Yeah, well, uh, Picard's outfit is kind of purplish when he's riding. His jacket. Right. Kind of purple, it's very purple. Yeah. The anomaly is purple. Right. When Geordi's sleeping in his room, there's a purple cast to everything. He dreams of purple. He dreams of purple? Okay. No, yeah, you're right, and and in his room it's purple. Yeah, I mean the, the, whatever the lighting is that's ca- casting a purple uh, color everywhere, it's, I mean it's like, <laughs> it's purple. Right. Yeah. Yes, the uh, the colorist loved purple. Mm-hmm. We're gonna go with a purple theme, I think, with this one. All right. <laughs> I don't know. Did 1994? Is that when the color purple came out? <laughs> Just kidding. Not funny. Wrath of Kumar, that's funny. <laughs> but not not the purple thing. Not the 1994 uh, Prince references. Sorry. 
I wasn't talking about Purple Rain. I was talking about the color purple with Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, Whoopi Goldberg. And, um, okay, same thing. Not funny. Winfrey. So, anyways, I I, th- I don't know. I didn't really like these, but <laughs> we've read worse. <laughs> no, we've read worse. They were okay. I mean, they definitely could have been better, but they're, you know, it's Star Trek. Digging it. Right. I, I agree with you that they were maybe 40 pages too long. Yeah. Definitely didn't have to be this long. So, did you see the awesome ad right there on the cover of Batman versus Predator okay. 2 Blood Match? Heck mm-hmm. yes. I, I was going to say that's my favorite part of the book, actually. <laughs> because that is a cool little artwork. And at first I thought it was really cool because it's Batman and Predator going at it, you know, hand-to-hand, mano a mano But then I also noticed that to the right there's more Predators coming up over the ledge. Right. And then to Batman's left, there's a whole bunch of... Um, what what Are those all villains? Because that looks like the Riddler. Uh, the, the Riddler... Gun. Yeah, in the background, it's Riddler, Two-Face, um, some other people. But the, the woman is Huntress. Huntress. Okay, right. well, she, she's, she's a good guy. She's got, she's got a great set of legs, I'll tell you that. But, uh, yeah, so it was like... Uh, it's like, oh, so Batman somehow got his posse coming up against the uh, the alien hunting team. Pretty cool. Right. That looks yes. cool. Yes, so they did three different uh, Batman vs. Predator miniseries mm-hmm. and I-, I really enjoyed them. Uh, Dark Horse and DC did a lot of crossovers right. uh, with Batman and Superman versus you know, Aliens, Terminator, Predator, Tarzan. You know, they did all, a whole bunch of crossover type things, and mm-hmm. I think the the Batman versus Predator ones were, you know, some of the best ones because that actually, you know, kind of made sense why, if there was really a Predator and if there really was a Batman and the Predator really wanted to, you know, hunt the best of the human species, mm-hmm. it, it would make sense that they would seek Talk out, Batman. you know, Batman. Sure. Yeah. Um. But uh, yeah, this one was a good one. I I recommend you tracking down the graphic novel and giving it a read. Now, keep in mind, I haven't read it since, you know, 1995, so (laughs) it might not be nearly as good as I remember it. As you remember. (laughs) But I remember that thing being like, oh, this is the best thing ever. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, so. Yeah, so all three of them were good. Look them up. Good. Will do. Amazon Amazon has them. Good. Okay. I'll give you 10 bucks. All right, that's it. We uh, don't have any expanded universe stuff. Okay. So if you're done with the issues, then we can close up, and we'll be back next week with Next Generation issues 73 through 75. Excellent. So keep in mind that we're not doing original series 73 through 75 because we covered those three issues way, 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 way back in episode 50. Ha. When uh, our good friend Brian joined the show and we did the whole, you know, it was uh, Carol Marcus and Mm -hmm. Kirk's relationship, birth of David. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we don't need to cover it again. So we'll just uh, skip Next Generation, or skip the original series and do Next Generation 73 through 75. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. 
All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic, second name book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.